0: we are now entering a critical thinking zone so thinking caps are required beyond this point from deep behind enemy lines deep in the heart of the midwest it's your host andrew coppins and it's time for critical thinking <laughs> Welcome into this Thursday edition of Critical Thinking. I am Andrew Coppins. You are you, and thank you so much for joining us, whether that or me. In this case, I'm just used to Pat being around still. I'm still getting used to this single thing, and uh, Pat will be back hopefully sooner rather than later. Um, Things are moving along slowly but surely for his home and uh, some of the things that are going on there. Um, So sooner rather than later, we will have Pat back heading into a Memorial Day weekend ahead of us, and I'll have more on that tomorrow on the Friday edition of the show. Um, But today, I wanted to start with this. First, thank you. Thank you to every one of you who reached out on various social media platforms to wish uh, Mrs. Coppins and myself a very happy anniversary. Yes, yesterday was our Brett Favre anniversary, as she likes to call it. Yes, uh, us Packer-obsessed individuals. It is year number four, well, our fourth anniversary. We're heading into year number five. Um, so yeah, um, we had a chance to rekindle and and um, reconstitute our dinner on the 25th, which was a tradition that we did, um, starting with our um, first month anniversary, and then got rudely interrupted by all the COVID lockdowns and bullcrap um, that ensued from there. Um, but I wanted to say thank you for all of the well wishes and the happy anniversaries and, and all of that wonderful goodness. It meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to Mrs. Coppins. And um, we had a really good time. We had a great dinner out at this place called Gretel. Um, it is an offshoot or a second location of a place that uh, we really like called little bad wolf here in chicago this oh 32 ounce bone-in ribeye sliced diced so damn good that's what we had 32 ounce bone-in ribeye for two came with salad and double the sides and oh delicious and may I say this, for all of the fun things that are downtown and all the restaurants and all that sort of stuff, go out and find yourself neighborhood restaurants here in Chicago because I'll tell you this, the, the food scene is almost as good, if not better, in the neighborhoods than it is just in the, the downtown corridor, if you will. Go out and explore um, if you're in the city for any extended period of time. The food scene here is incredible. And the only other thing I wanted to say from this is, and the lessons that I've learned in in the four years of marriage uh, to, to my wonderful, beautiful bride, is this, take time and time out to nourish your relationship in whatever form that can take, but do it and do it consistently. So for us, we have started that tradition. We, every month, go and find a new restaurant that neither of us have been to. We have a meal there, whether that is lunch, dinner, brunch, whatever have you. And we take time out of whatever is going on in our lives to just be present with each other. To talk about the big things. To laugh and just let go of of everything else, but to just be present in each other's company. Because oftentimes that can get lost in any relationship, whether you have kids or you don't have kids, whether you're super busy all the time or you're not so much. We get into routines. And so make a routine, make a habit, whatever that is for you, whatever works in your relationship. But I find it to be healthy. I find it to be cathartic. I find it to be re-engaging and a great reminder of being present with your partner. Um, So yeah, we had a great meal. I would highly recommend checking Gretel out. Um, There's a couple of breweries around there as well, if you're into that sort of thing. Um, And and most importantly, it's got one of the, the best bourbon and whiskey collections I have ever seen at a restaurant ever. So if you're into that, I would definitely check it out. Um, Some really, really cool stuff there. Um, I highly recommend the food. It was absolutely fantastic. Um, But with that all having been said, um, I also have to say mea copa. I'm sorry. Um, And I'm sorry because yesterday when we were talking on this show, what were we talking about? Well, we were talking about the need to be present in that mournful moment, the needing to allow room to breathe and to understand the story and to gather facts before speaking and to not speak from narrative, but from the reality of this specific situation and maybe looking into broader situations at play so that having been said i am sorry because i stupidly trusted the information coming from the officials in texas yesterday because as of yesterday morning number one we had a death count that was somewhere between 19 and 23 depending on whatever source It looks to be 22 is the accurate number at this point in time. That number still could climb. There are still people clinging to life, unfortunately. That having been said, the other part of this is this narrative that that I talked about, the, the heroic Customs and Border Patrol agent who stormed in and put down the mass murderer. That is a heroic effort. That was told to us, by the way, not from witnesses, not from this, that, or the other thing, but that was the official narrative from the officials on the ground. That's the story told to us there. I apologize, and I'm sorry, because that's not true. That is not what happened, no way, no how. It doesn't jive with the story that was told to us by multiple kids who have spoken publicly about this. And I'm not a parent, so I can't understand that decision-making process. But given the the severity of the moment, I, I don't know if I would have the courage to allow my child to speak in a public forum in that close of a proximity to that situation. But there is a parent who did that, a couple of parents, and that's their choice. Except for the story that was told by the students didn't jive with the official story. You see, the students tell their story about this. Um, they They told of this turning, or not turning over, but hiding underneath a table that had a tablecloth draped over it so that the shooter couldn't see them. And they tell the story of um, agents who were yelling, anybody in there need help, yell help. Anybody in there need help, yell help. And a student yelling help and summarily being shot by the mass murderer. And then they storm through the barricaded door to kill the mass murderer. That's not the narrative. The narrative was that the mass murderer was free in the hallways and, and a and a Customs and Border Patrol agent went in and, and heroically shot him by himself. Except that didn't happen. So I apologize for... Believing that story. I apologize because what is the advice that I gave? Pause. Reflect. Live in that mournful moment. What does it matter at the end of the day? What the the story is. What, What does it matter what they're telling us took place other than at least in the immediate aftermath of this event, other than to understand and to know that we need to mourn 22 people who have already died. Frankly, in the first 24 hours or so, that's really all we need to know. But now that we're 48 hours out, now that we're, you know, 72 hours out or whatever, now, suddenly, the narrative that the media bought Hook, Line, and Sinker. The narrative that we've all rushed to, to tell, right? Because who doesn't like to tell a, a story of heroism inside a traumatic and drama filled situation? Who doesn't like to tell that story, right? It certainly was a great story, just wasn't true. And that's kind of where I want to go with today's episode. Truth. Because if we're going to have a discussion about gun control, if we're going to have a discussion around we must do something, we have to start from the point of truth. And that goes for all sides of the gun debate. It really does. We have to be truthful in our numbers. We have to be truthful in what our objectives are. We must be truthful in speaking to the other side and speaking with the other side. And we must be honest about those motives. But we haven't seen that from both sides of that gun debate, but specifically from people who should be leading in this moment and instead are more interested in politicizing the moment. And that happens on both sides here. It does. And we can't even gather the facts and get the story straight in 48 hours. Yet we're supposed to have action now, according to Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Right? Our president and our vice president, action now. Stand up to the gun lobby, blah, 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 blah. We don't know the story. We are piecing bits of it together and, and, The bits and pieces that we do have that have been verified. Show what they've shown in almost every single one of these cases. Somebody who. Has a troubled home life. Or. And or. Mental instability. Whether that is through depression, anxiety, schizophrenia, other mental disorders, whether that's through retaliation from bullying and trauma, whatever the case may be, there is a mental trigger. We know bits and pieces of the quote unquote why here we do we know bits and pieces of the how but we don't know the full story so until then I'm not willing to blanket statement or just flatly talk about what could be done that's something that could be done Because it is important, if there's a law that was violated, how did it happen and why? For instance, do we know why that back door to the school was left open? That's one way that we can easily harden a target, right? Is to make and choke points of entry so that you only can enter one way into the school. You know, I talked to friends of mine who are parents who have school-aged children and Guess what? You can't as a parent even enter the school building without showing ID and then being buzzed in not once but twice and having all of your stuff verified. There's choke points. There's entry barriers. And oh, by the way, guess what? I forgot my ID at home. Well, go get it and, and then we can talk, right? We don't know how or why that happened still. Still. I haven't seen an answer to that. We don't have the full picture. And until we have that full picture, I'm not ready to talk about remedies and, and all sorts of things, because this is an individual case, just as Parkland was an individual case, just as Buffalo, just as, you know, Columbine back in the day in 1999, I believe it was, because I was still in high school. I believe I was either a junior or senior when that happened. It was either 98 or 99. I just can't remember the the year off the top of my head. But having said that, once we have that full breadth of information from all of these things, can we piece together trends and, and things that might be important? Absolutely we can. But we just don't have enough information in this particular case. That's the reality. But what I can speak on right now is... The utter mistruths and outright lies that are being told in this whole ongoing social media war of of, you know, guns forever, cannons for everybody versus nobody can own and let's confiscate the guns and blah, 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 blah. I will say this up front, though. I have respect for one person and one person alone on Twitter right now. One person. And that person happens to be... uh, Let me get it for you here real quick. Just want to make sure. His name is Michael Ian Black. You might know him as an actor. You might know him from uh, comedy and, and things of that nature. But... In the wake of this, what did he argue repeal the second amendment wait how can you respect that right i I know that's the question that you're asking me well here's how i can respect it because that's the honest answer from the pro gun control advocacy groups that's the actual end game and i can respect that because it's honest it's true That's exactly what most of these people really would like to do. That is, they just don't want to say it. Why? Because it is a wholly unpopular, not just opinion, but potential movement. But to the Michael Ian Blacks, to the people who can be honest, let's have that debate. Let's have it out in the court of public opinion. Let's have that out. Advocate for the repeal of the Second Amendment. Go for it. Let's find out. That's kind of been a theme as of late. Let's find out. I can wholly respect you for having that honest opinion. You're not couching it in, well, if we just tweak, tweak this or do this or just modify this part or if we just ban this or whatever. No, in your heart of hearts, you actually mean repeal the Second Amendment. Just as I, in my heart of hearts, believe that the Second Amendment is not there for sport, it is not there for anything other than to say that we should be able to protect ourselves against a tyrannical government that wants to overrule and overrun us. And however, I would like to protect myself from that, if I want to protect myself from that, I should be able to, in whatever means that is. Whether that's owning a machine gun, whether that's owning whatever. I know that that is somewhat of a very radical position when it comes to the Second Amendment. But I can at least have that honest, open debate with somebody like Michael Ian Black. I can absolutely have that. And let's have that broader discussion. Let's do it. And let's do it right about now. How about as a society and let's see who wins because ultimately that is what those amendments to the constitution are about is really what, what do we want as a society and how do we want to structure our government? And by the way, government from the viewpoint of it is supposed to protect our liberties, not strip our liberties, but to protect liberties. Let's have that discussion. Let's go ahead and do it. Do we want to change how our government is supposed to be structured and what types of things that we're supposed to um, expect from our government? I can honestly have that debate. So I respect that. But what I cannot respect are the blatant lies, the absolute mistruths on both sides of the equation, and the inability for people to just be honest about their goals. And I want to start with President Joseph marionette biden because yesterday he repeats this lie the second amendment from the day that it was passed limited the type of people who could own a gun and what type of weapon you could own you couldn't buy a cannon say what so the the day that the second amendment was passed was in the year 1791. I know of that. I just don't remember the actual date of its passage. But 1791 is the year that it was passed in. Um what are you talking about, Willis? Um No. But this is the repeated nature of Joseph Marionette Biden, because that's not the first time, it's not the second time, it's not the third time, it's not the fourth time, it's not the fifth time. There's at least a half a dozen or more times that Joe Biden has repeated this line. Largely unchecked, by the way, with the exception of, wait for this, The Washington Post. Who, on June 28th of 2021, Glenn Kessler gave not one, not two, but three or four, yes, all four Pinocchios to that idea from Joe Biden. And oh, by the way, was also fact-checked on that in 2020, when he repeated this at multiple events um, in multiple settings during the 2020 presidential campaign. But this is a pattern with Joe Biden, to just repeat absurdities, you know, oh, for God's sake, for God's sake, what in God's name? Uh, okay, well. What are you talking about Willis what what the hell are you doing then we have the um, the deer and Kevlar vests that's a narrative as if that what what who the hell thinks that what no and also AR15s are the worst sporting rifle that you could think of when it comes to hunting deer they just don't have the power. And they do way too much damage to the thing that you're shooting. And there's no meat left for those who would like to eat that meat, which is a large portion of the reason people hunt. Now, I give the Washington Post credit. And I want to go through this real quick because as Glenn Kessler points out, the president offered this aside as he made a litany of his regular points about the need for background checks and what he says with the effectiveness of bans on assault weapons and large capacity magazines that had expired. And by the way, that narrative is an absolute lie that has been told over and over again by Joe Biden as well. And the media just lets it go. Why? Same team, bro. Same team, right? Now, you might say, well, this might be a technicality thing, right? No, it turns out, uh, no. So here are the facts, according to the Washington Post. The canon element is what mostly interests here. Uh, But we should also address Biden's framing about the Second Amendment, which was part of the Bill of Rights adopted in 1791. The meaning of the Second Amendment has long been debated, but experts said Biden especially mischaracterized it. David Koppel, uh, Research Director and Second Amendment Project Director at the Independence Institute notes, everything in that statement is wrong. There were no federal laws about the type of gun that you could own and no states limited the kind of gun that you could own. And it was not until the early 1800s were there any efforts to pass any restrictions on carrying concealed weapons, let alone regular carrying? Now, Kermit Roosevelt, a constitutional law professor at the University of Pennsylvania, had this to say. I think what he's saying here is that the Second Amendment was never understood to guarantee everyone the right to own all types of weapons, which I believe is true. As phrased, though, it sounds like the Second Amendment itself limited ownership, which is not true. Koppel noted that some states placed gun ownership restrictions on Native American tribes, including orders to disarm them, but the tribes under the Constitution at the time were treated as the equivalent of foreign nations. Now, during the campaign, Biden had asserted that the cannon restrictions happened during the Revolutionary War. So he's moved the goalpost. Oh, oh no, I, 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 I didn't mean the Revolutionary War. I meant uh, 1791 and um, the, the, the Bill of Rights. That, that, that's what I meant. Still, there were no laws on the books in any of the colonies. It didn't exist in the Continental C- Congress. Not one zip zero zelch squadouche. Not a single law. Oh, but it's just a metaphor. <laughs> but the metaphor moves 20 years into the Revolutionary War period, and, and uh, oh, uh-oh, I still can't find it. Now, ironically, here's what the Constitution of the United States of America might tell us about canons, as the Post points out. In fact, you do not have to look far into the Constitution to see that private individuals could own canons. I'm going to say that again. In fact, you do not have to look far in the Constitution to see that private individuals could own canons. Private individuals could own canons. Private individuals could own canons. Where? <clears throat> Try the very first article of the Constitution. Article 1, Section 8, Clause 11, to be specific, which gives Congress the power to declare war. But there is another element of that clause that might seem strange to modern ears. Congress also has the power to to grant letters of marquee and reprisal. Now, what is that? Well, These were special waivers that allowed private individuals to act as pirates on behalf of the United States against countries engaged in war with it. The letter of marquee would allow a warship to cross into another country's territory to take a ship, while a letter of reprisal gave authorization to bring that ship back to the home port of the capturer. What would that ship look like? Oh, private. Cannon ownership because cannons are and were things that warships would have on them. Individuals who were given these waivers and owned warships obviously also obtained cannons for use in battle. That's about the only thing that our government has ever, and I mean ever, said in terms of law. About canon ownership. So what the hell are you talking about, Joseph Marionette Biden? Well, 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 Andrew, Andrew, he's old and he doesn't know what he's saying. Right, so you're making my point for me. He is mentally incapable and incompetent. So why would we listen to him and why is he still standing in front of us as the President of the United States of America. But that's not what you mean by that. So what other explanation for these repeated, verifiably false claims just continuously on a loop inside Joe Biden's mind? What other explanation is there for these things being allowed to continue to come out of his mouth unchecked. Well, the Washington Post has checked it, but that's one media outlet. The rest of the media should stand up there and just hammer him on this stuff. Because it's not helpful to having an honest debate, which I, again, am all for having. An informed and honest debate. Again, the Washington Post gives four Pinocchios. Now, the other thing that grinds my gears, if you will, when it comes to these arguments, is Joe Biden and the um, anti-gun left activist crowd. Every single time that one of these events occurs. The United States has more mass shootings than anywhere else in the world, and nowhere else in the world does this happen. My God. People like Beto O'Rourke. People like Joe Biden getting up in front of the entire country and talking about this and, and continuing that narrative. So I asked myself, where where's the data? What where do we get this data from? Gun violence, emergency, right? All of that sort of stuff that we hear from Kamala Harris and Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and yada yada yada. Now, We also hear this is almost a daily occurrence and da 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 da, right? What if I told you NPR of all places has already in 2019, so three years ago, debunked these myths? And what if I told you that this is one study? That's where they're getting their information from. A University of Alabama. Associate Professor Adam Linkford, who, by the way, over the last three years has basically gone into, quote unquote, hiding, refuses to allow access to his data and how he got to his conclusions. All I'm going to say on this is this, okay? NPR, reporters, reporters, looked into the 235 shootings reported by the U.S. Department of Education. Because we're told this is almost a daily occurrence and it happens, blah, 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 blah. And we've heard, well, there's been 900 of these shootings, uh, school shootings, right? Shootings at school. NPR back in 2019 could only confirm Of the 235 from the U.S. Department of Education, 11. As John Stossel points out in a 2019 article, it turned out that schools were added to the list merely because someone at the school heard there may have been a shooting. Not that there was a shooting, or not that there was a shooting in school, at school, during school hours, At all. By the way, of those quote unquote 900 number that you're going to hear out there in this debate, less than 100 can be verified as taking place on school grounds. Kind of an important detail, but also of those 100, less than half of those can be verified as Actual school shootings. Now, economist John Lott did a lot of work. He works at the Crime Prevention Research Center. And, to be fair, also has wrote a pro-gun book. Okay? But... Langford has claimed that since 1966 there were 90 mass public shooters in the United States. That's where this, more than any other country, argument comes from. Langford claimed complete data were available from 171 countries in the world. There's just a problem with that. The vast majority of the world does not collect the data that would give Lankford or any other researcher that information. And even if they collect some of the data, most of them don't have that data from prior to the internet's existence. In India, let's just take that as John Stossel points out, A shooting in that country would likely be reported only in local newspapers in a local dialect. So how the hell would somebody like Lankford ever find out about it? How are you hiring linguistic experts to to dive in? How did he even collect the information? What languages was he searching into my point? Langford refuses to give that information, refuses to speak on his study. He just claims he's the Almighty. But when John Lott in that in the Crime Prevention Research Center checked the data using Langford's own definition of mass shooting, which was four or more people killed. And that is also part of the problem here. What? Do, how do you define your terms? And that's always important when it comes to data analysis. Define the problem. Define the terms. Define, 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 define. Well, the center found more than 3,000 shootings around the world. Langford said there were only 202. Lankford tells the world, because this is the thing that will help his study, Say says that he excluded sponsored terrorism. But again, what the hell is sponsored terrorism? Define, 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 which he doesn't do. So, Lott, okay, let's give him the credit for that, removed terrorism cases from his data, still finding 709 shootings, which is more than triple the number that Lankford reported in his study. Now, according to the study that Lott is able to find out, it turns out <clears throat> number 62 in the country, in the, excuse me, in the world, number 62, Norway, Finland, Switzerland, all higher on the list. Now, Lott also was able to track gun ownership rates and mass shooting, right, a correlation, Is there a correlation? Is there a causation? Right? Correlation doesn't have to equal causation, but trends and things like that are important to understand. Well, no relationship between the rate of gun ownership and the rate of mass shootings. Just that simple. Just that Simple, folks. But I am frankly sick and tired because there's no point in debating these people because they don't actually care. Like a person like Michael Ian Black who actually means what he says, again, that is a person I can have an honest and open, hopefully, dialogue with or at least a debate with. That's something I can certainly do. But... To people who are just attempting to score political points and don't care about the reality, don't care about, wait a minute, I have other data that says something completely different. I don't care. We've seen it for two plus years when it comes to COVID-19. We've seen it time and again. So it's not worth the time or effort. The only effort and time that it's worth, by the way, is to inform you so that you have the information as best as possible and do with it as you would wish. Put it in the memory bank. Maybe uh, talk to your family about it. Maybe do those types of things. But in the broader perspective, for somebody who's going to trot out those Langford numbers, for somebody who won't even tell you where they got those numbers except for they've heard it from the president or they've heard it from this person or that person, not worth discussing. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your breath. Don't waste your effort. Efforts that you could put into your family, put into your business, put into social life. Much, much, much better uses of your time and effort. But there is one other lie that Joe Biden has told, and it has nothing, by the way, to do, nothing to do with um, the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. Nothing. But it does have to do with The great push and um, the economic bullcrap that we are going through right now and its um, gas prices. When it comes to the gas prices, uh, we're going through an incredible transition that is taking place that God willing, when it's over, we'll be stronger and the world will be stronger and less reliant on fossil fuels when this is over. Did you hear about that? Did you hear? This is intentional transition. This is what people like myself, Steve Dace, Glenn Beck, other people in the libertarian and conservative spheres have been talking about, well, at least since the beginning of my show and the beginning of other shows. But we've been talking about it. This is actually what they believe, just like with the the anti-gun nuts. That are out there. They actually would love to repeal the Second Amendment. They just don't believe it's possible to do so. So they're going to try to strike around the edges until they topple it over. Just like I firmly believe the people surrounding Joe Biden are much more interested in toppling government, in toppling our society writ large, economically, socially, politically, culturally. They're interested in toppling and replacing. Not a transition. But how do you topple in in this regard when it comes to, to fossil fuels, when it comes to um, gas and all that stuff? You make it as expensive as humanly possible. And then here's your handout. Or I have the solution, right? I'm with the government. And I have a solution to kind of steal from uh, Ronald Reagan, right? So when we talk about this, do I believe that a transition away from fuels that can harm the world is a good thing? Yeah. But I should be free to make that decision of my own free will. And yes, gas prices are somewhat attributable to supply issues, somewhat attributable to the um, Russian-Ukrainian war, somewhat uh, attributable to that. But we do have solutions that we could temporarily do here in the United States of America that would allow for us to, in a couple of months, in six months, in a year, in two years, be able to put these prices back down. We just refuse to do them. Instead, they actually are cheering on these high gas prices in the hopes that that you, we're going to push you over the cliff into electric vehicle land. But I want to speak on this, okay? I, I really do want to speak on this because... I am somebody who has intimate knowledge of how our parking infrastructure, our mobility infrastructure actually works, Okay, and if we're going to go down this route, we clearly do not have the infrastructure in place for this great transition, as they want to put it, to electric vehicles. We don't have the infrastructure to make it work. We cannot just massively flip the switch. It turns out that allowing people to transition naturally is the best bet. And there are really six challenges. This comes from Parking Network. Um, Six challenges that we need to overcome to increase EV ownership. And one of them is range anxiety. Now, what do we know about this? Well, it's similar to gas anxiety in the early days of, of car ownership. You had very limited range in which you could travel in a car before you had to fill up again. As it points out here, um, it goes beyond battery life. We have to improve the charging infrastructure. It's not just about, well, I can only go 300 miles. 300 miles is a lot, right? 300 miles is basically from Green Bay where I grew up to here in Chicago, almost. Takes about three hours. But it's not just about how far can I go? It's about, okay, how how quickly can I fill up? or where do i go to recharge the battery literally right where do i go i have to actually physically plan that stuff out we have a very well established network of gas filling stations right <coughs> let's say i take a, a a tank all the way down to empty it might take me 5 minutes at a gas station at best and that includes you know um going To the bathroom and getting a snack and getting something to drink and then filling up. Filling up might take you, what, a minute, three minutes at max? Doesn't take you long. Fill up, go see you later. Have you tried to fill up a vehicle that is 20% full of battery life, an electric vehicle? Uh, Motel 6 called and they would like their lights to be left on. Because you're going to have to do that most, most likely overnight. The reality is the number one issue is that we do not currently today have the charging infrastructure to be able to just flip the switch and every single car is replaced with an electric vehicle. It cannot happen. Hell, we don't even have enough for 50% EV ownership here in the United States of America. We simply don't. And until we improve not just access and knowledge and wherewithal of the charging station, but that the charging station can only take you 10 minutes or 5 minutes out of your travels, until that happens... I mean, a Tesla can get you 80% of the way, right? You can get to an 80% charge in what, 15, 20 minutes with the Tesla fast chargers. But we would literally have to have those everywhere and different versions of them for different vehicles and da-da-da-da-da-da. We don't have universality when it comes to that. It's pretty universal. I can pull up to a gas station and stick the nozzle in and it's cool. We don't have that. We just don't have the amount or the ability to quickly service the needs of mass electric vehicle ownership. We don't. But they continue to say creating EV charging availability through enforcement. We also don't have that. It is a... Available EV charging stations are frequently misused either buy non-electric vehicles parking in those spaces or electric vehicles that no longer require charging just sitting there. That doesn't help, right? But we also now also need to find a way to align payment. How do you pay for your electric vehicle charging? Is there going to be an app at every gas station now that you know, or every EV charging station? You have to download a, a new app. How do you accept payment? How, if you're in a parking garage, right, how do you align your payments with the electric vehicle payments? These are things that my previous employer were already working on back in 2017 and 2018. These are not easy solutions. These are not things that you can just flip a switch and automatically have done because there are so many other ecosystems that need to speak to each other, need to work in tandem. For this to work for the consumer, we also have to find a way to integrate electric vehicle charging with parking and the larger mobility ecosystem. Currently, that doesn't really exist. EV charging needs to be convenient for drivers. And that only becomes possible when the driver no longer needs to alter their journey to visit a filling station. And this is the, the mobility as service of the future that my company was talking about back in 2018, 2019, 2017. That we have to find a way to transform what that parking garage actually does for the future. It needs... Um, to be something that services people so that they don't have to go to this point out of their way to go find that charging, to go find these things. And we also have to address the massive ownership expense. I mean, it, it the the entry to barrier of ownership for an electric vehicle, it could cost you 60, 70, 80, 90, $120,000 for top of the line electric vehicles. Well, sure, the Chevy Bolt, except for literally nobody will allow you to charge a Chevy Bolt. Can you get a, a base end Tesla for 35 40000 Absolutely, but that's still a lot of money. That's a barrier to entry for many, many people. I firmly believe that as we build these infrastructure. Uh, portions. As we try to solve these problems, and the biggest of them is the inability to quickly and efficiently, effectively charge. If we can solve that, do I think flipping the switch makes sense? Yes, at that point in time. But until then, it needs to be gradual. It cannot be something that artificially is done at the behest of government wishes. This idea that well this will force the transition so what you're telling me is you are literally trying to starve us out of the economy and put people out of business and and bankrupt families to push an agenda that isn't ready we don't have the infrastructure and oh by the way we still don't have an idea of how we could wait for it um reduce our oil production because it turns out even as you charge, where do we normally get our power? Oh, from fossil fuels like coal and oil, gas. (coughs) Oh, you know, you know what? If we, if we just, hang on a second, built nuclear plants again, built nuclear plants. If we just built nuclear plants, we would have reliable, resourceful, clean, powerful, consistent energy that could power this kind of an infrastructure change. So what are we doing? What are, what are we doing? And by the way, um, the lithium, all of the things that it takes to build these batteries is also not a renewable source of energy it's not it is a finite thing in which if everybody that had a vehicle right now switched over to an electric vehicle we wouldn't have enough lithium available to, to give you a battery for your car now again that doesn't mean you shouldn't look to potentially own a, an electric vehicle now or in the future. If if you're okay with some of the inconveniences that happen because you like to be ahead of the technological curve or whatever have you, go for it, have at it. But for the government to suggest that somehow this is a positive for our society when the infrastructure and the technology are just not quite there yet, not even close to being able to be mass consumption available, That I have a problem with. And on that note, please have yourselves a good rest of your day. Be smart, be safe, be kind. And as always, Matthew 547. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style